0: Thank you. I'm excited to bring the word. I I really think this is my favorite sermon of all time. Can I say that? I might might say that a lot, though. Um, In my mind, I say it. I I love uh, what we have learned going through the book of Exodus. And Exodus, uh, I know you're going to cry right now, but this is our second to last message in Exodus. We only have one more. I know it's sad. But we are uh, excited. I am excited too to, to move on to 2 Corinthians starting in September. Well, probably October. Um, Book of Revelation on Wednesday night. That's going to be exciting if you've never gone through that before. So, our message today is called The Ark and the Mercy Seat. And we're looking at the furnishings of the tabernacle. The Ark and the Mercy Seat. Three men decided to confess their deepest secrets to one another. They thought that it would help lessen their guilty feelings. The first man said, fellas, I have a gambling problem. Every night, I drive over to the casino and I gamble. second man said, guys, I have a drinking problem. Every night, I go into the basement, sneak off, and I get drunk. The third man said, Men, I have a gossip problem. Every night I blog about people's secrets. <laughs> I don't think that his guilt is going to go away anytime soon. How do you deal with your, your guilt? That's the question I want you to think about for a little bit. How do you deal with your guilt? Because we all have guilt. I feel like you thought I was serious there. You didn't know I was going to tell a joke there. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, all right. Um, How do you deal with your guilt? Do you play the blame game? That's one way people deal with their guilt. I'm going to share with you two ways. Do you play the blame game? Adam and Eve, the very first uh, couple, the very first uh, people God created, Adam and Eve, they played the blame game. If you go into Genesis and you read the story about them, the first few chapters, you realize that they had a wonderful life living in the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden was a special place, a holy place. They had it made. Work, it says work, was actually enjoyable. I mean, you know it's a special place if work was enjoyable. And they could eat any from any tree, except for one tree they couldn't eat from. And they walked with God in the cool of the day. Now God said, he gave one command, one. That was it. That's the only thing they had. One command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They broke the one rule. Shows a lot about us, doesn't it? One rule. So when they broke it, when they ate the forbidden fruit, you probably have heard the story before. You know how it goes. God called on them for their daily walk, He was looking for them. And where were they? They were hiding. Because God is light, God is holy, and they realized for the very first time they were not holy. In fact, they saw it for the first time, they were guilty. And they were hiding in darkness, away from God, guilt. How did they deal with it? Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. But seriously, this is how some people deal with guilt. They don't take personal responsibility for their guilt. The other way, the other end of the spectrum, if you will, people deal with guilt by playing the shame game. Some people play the blame game, some people play the shame game. Do you play the shame game? Do you condemn yourself, tell yourself how terrible you are over and over again? That's what I call stinking thinking. It's not a good thing. Brene Brown is a leading researcher on the topic of shame. You may have read her books. You may have heard her. She's an excellent speaker. Got best-selling, uh, she's a best-selling author multiple times. Brene Brown says this, based on my research of shame, I believe there's a profound difference between shame and guilt. I believe guilt is helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do against our values and feeling that discomfort. But she said, I define shame as the intensely painful feeling and belief that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. I think shame is likely to be the source of destructive, hurtful behavior. That's what the leading researcher on shame says about it. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is a feeling that comes from God, and it is a a good thing to help us seek him. Shame comes from the devil, and its purpose is to isolate you and do what the devil does best. Jesus said he steals, kills, and destroys your life. Guilt is like an alarm that goes off to wake you up to take action. Shame is when you keep pressing the snooze button. Shame on you. How do you deal with your guilt? Do you play the blame game? Do you play the shame game? The blame game minimizes your guilt. Blaming others, comparing yourself to others worse than you. You've done that before. At least I've never done something like that. Or ignoring your guilt, hiding your guilt. The blame game actually fits very well in our culture today because our culture is a silence you culture or a cancel you culture, if they don't like what you have to say. So the blame game works good in our culture. Now, shame, the shame game does the opposite. It maximizes your guilt. It gets louder and louder in your head, and I told you it, gives, it, it often leads to isolation and destructive behaviors like addictions. Shame doesn't say your actions are wrong. Shame says you are wrong. And that's bad. I often tell parents and, and encourage parents not to say that your child is bad, their actions are bad. They are not. We, 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 we tend to um, crush their self-worth when we do that. So how, God, how does God deal with our guilt? Because those two options that typically the way people deal with guilt, they're not very helpful. In fact, they're, they're pretty hurtful. And I want to share with you the the best way to deal with your guilt, how to deal with your guilt. But before I do that, I want to tell you how God deals with your guilt. And in terms of not necessarily your feelings of guilt, but your status or your condition of guilt. Because those two things are separate. I think I don't have to explain it. You get the difference. There's the feeling of guilt, but then there's also your guilty condition, your status, based on what we've done. So we go back to Adam and Eve. Remember what they did? Yeah, they sinned. We call it sin, missing the mark. They disobeyed God. He had one command, they disobeyed it. Huge consequences for their actions. Let me tell you. Number one, humanity, us, we inherit a sinful nature because of Adam and Eve. We come from them, they sinned, and we inherit the sinful nature. Everyone sins and falls short of God's perfection. I don't have to do what Ray Comfort does, do I? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen something? Okay, we get it. We've broken the Ten Commandments. But secondly, the consequences of Adam and Eve's action is that two animals died so that they could have, number one, clothes. Genesis 3.21 The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments Of skins and clothed them. Now, at this point, Adam and Eve are the only people on the earth. But there's plenty of animals. Adam named the animals, pairs of animals. There's an animal that we will never know. It was killed so that they could have clothes. Because Adam and Eve now know good and evil, and so they realize that being naked is not good. We need to cover ourselves. They felt guilty. So God provided clothes by killing two animals. But the second reason that God killed two animals is what's really important for today's message. It goes all the way back to the beginning, how God has dealt with our guilt. He killed two animals to propitiate his own wrath and expiate for our sin. Now, I know those are fancy words, aren't they? And I don't say them to be smart, but I say them because I want you to understand, and I have synonyms for you. Everybody likes synonyms. I do. Two animals died to appease God's wrath and atone for their sin. Appease God's wrath and atone for their sin. And if you don't like those two, I have two more. Two animals died to satisfy God's wrath and to pay the price for their sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, Hebrews 9 tells us. Now the fourth consequence, God locked up the Garden of Eden. You won't find it, and if you did, you wouldn't come close. Because it says in Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man and the east, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Tree of life giving eternal life. Cherubim are God's angels. God put those cherubim to guard his holy place. The Garden of Eden was a holy place. There was no sin in the Garden of Eden They were removed. Now, let's fast forward to 1445 B.C., shall we? The book of Exodus, the one we've been studying, the one we've been looking at. And Moses and the Israelites, they built this tabernacle. I have a picture for you. This is the one I showed you last week. It's sort of a a cutaway, if you will, of the holy place and the most holy place. Two-thirds, in fact, if you want the actual dimensions, the center section here of our church, all the comfy chairs, would be the exact size, 15 feet by 45 feet, of the tabernacle. The first uh, two-thirds of it, the size of it, you can see on the right side of the screen, is the holy place. Three things are in it. Unless the priest is in there, then there's four. The golden lampstand, the table for burning incense, and the table for the bread of the presence. That was last week's message. Then there's the veil. Behind the veil is what we're talking about today. Behind the veil is the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark, the lid, is the mercy seat. Let's cut to the title. will show you the title. You can see a picture of it behind there. Beautiful. Made of acacia wood, covered in gold. And what's on top? Let's see. Exodus 25. Moses was given instructions. I'm going to read to you three verses. Three verses. He said to Moses, You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the lid of the ark. The ark is this box, small box, not very big. Okay. The two, uh, verse 20, The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. Why is this important? Verse 22. That's where I'll meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. I will meet with you. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. So we see cherubim, at the holy garden of Eden, but then we also see God's cherubim in the most holy place. That's not a coincidence. They're there because it's the holy place. Now, we saw how God dealt with Adam and Eve's guilt. We saw how God dealt with Adam and Eve's guilt. Now we're going to see how God deals with the guilt of the Israelites in Exodus. How many of you have heard of the Day of Atonement? The Jewish people celebrated, if if you're in Judaism, it's the most holy day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Well, let me tell you what happened when there was a tabernacle and when there was a temple on this Day of Atonement. It was very significant of how God deals with our guilt, even today. So the priests would select two goats on this day, two goats, One goat would be sacrificed, one would be released. The goat that was sacrificed, the high priest would enter the most holy place. He's the only one. One day a year, he goes behind the veil with the blood of that goat and puts it on the mercy seat. Why? The answer is propitiation. Appease God's wrath. That's why. That's why. God's wrath must be satisfied. I wonder if you believe in God's wrath. Christians today seem to be a little bit indifferent about God's wrath. In fact, our family enjoyed a wonderful week at a magnificent place. Love this place. We've gone a couple years now in a row. It's called Maranatha. I have a picture for you. Maranatha means the Lord is coming. And this is just a little slice of heaven right on Lake Michigan. It's a retreat center. All summer long, all summer long, they have chapel every night. They have speakers in the morning, speakers in the evening. And our week, we had the pleasure of listening to Dr. Erwin Lutzer. If you've ever listened to the radio show, he's he's been on the radio. He was the pastor of Moody Bible in Chicago, Moody Bible Church, and uh, his sermon on Wednesday specifically, I loved it because he talked about God's wrath, but, but he also talked about what happens in the Old Testament. Stuff I've been teaching you, you know? And it's like when, when you teach something, you know, and, and I'm a rookie compared to Dr. Lutzer. I mean, the man is 80 years old and he's still sharp as a tack and preaching the word and teaching, writing books. He's talking about how next May they're going. To do another tour of uh, Germany, he has uh, uh, an interesting um, knowledge and and uh, of the Reformation and so on and so forth. But he's talking about God's wrath, and he pointed out in this sermon that a lot of Christians don't believe in that God's wrath today is the same as it was before in the Old Testament. Like there's there's a there's a disconnect between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. You know we. A lot of Christians just want to believe that there's this loving, caring God of the New Testament. He doesn't have this wrathful side of him anymore. And his point was, his proof, if you will, was they clearly haven't read Revelation. Because in the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes back and the end comes, there's some serious wrath, worse than ever before. That's going to be poured out. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ before Jesus comes back... God's not going to give you a timeout or a little spanking and say, do better next time. Like, that's it. There's no second chances. He's going to do what he does. He doesn't change. God is immutable. He doesn't change. He's the same God. So I hope you believe in God's wrath. But more importantly, I hope you see how it is satisfied. How it's satisfied. How God deals with his own wrath and with our guilt. So in this tabernacle, the blood of the goat is what satisfied God's wrath, this this once-a-year action. But it didn't just satisfy his wrath. The blood also paid the price for the people's sin. So it appeased and it atoned. It satisfied. It paid the price. It propitiated and it expiated. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, Oh, hold on a second. You're talking about the blood of a goat. I thought it was the blood of a lamb. You probably maybe sang a song before about that. So let me take you back to many messages ago in Exodus, and I taught you something important about the word lamb. It actually means member of a flock. So you could have goat lambs, sheep lambs, or cow lambs, because lamb just means the member of a flock. But on the Day of Atonement, it's two goats. Two goat lambs. So the priest brings in the two goats. By lot, they cast lots. They select one to be sacrificed. The other one becomes the scapegoat. And you're laughing because you're like, you know that term, right? You've never... You didn't know. I mean, I won't, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but some of you, I know, you didn't know that was a Bible word. I love it when stuff comes up and it's like, did you know that Like that comes from the Bible? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, let me tell you about it. And that's usually when they walk away, but, you know, <laughs> I try. But seriously, the scapegoat is a Bible term because this goat would symbolically have and put on it all of the sins for the previous year onto it from the nation of Israel. All the sins of the people would go onto this scapegoat, and a priest designated would take this goat out of the camp, out into the wilderness, as far away as possible, and release it. That's the concept of the scapegoat. Because the guilt is there. And it takes the the goat all the way away. I mean, if you've ever been the scapegoat, it's no fun, right? A scapegoat, in case you're wondering, like, what's a scapegoat? I don't quite get it. It's when a bunch of people are guilty, but you take the blame. (laughs) That's being the scapegoat. So that's what would happen. And if you grasp that, you grasp atonement. And you might have heard that word, you might have read that word before, and it's like, what does atonement mean? Well, it's two things. It's God paying the price for your sin, but it's also him removing the sin as far away from you as possible. Now let's fast forward to 33 AD, shall we? In 33 AD, Jesus shed his blood and was crucified on the cross. With that one remarkable action, Jesus... Propitiated God's wrath and expiated for your sin. The Apostle Paul explains it nicely in Romans 3. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we are justified by grace. It's a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now pay close attention to verse 25. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's that word, propitiation. Now, the Greek word is hilasterion, and it's used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Hebrews 9:5. But the translators didn't translate it propitiation because of the context. Hebrews 9:5 says, Above it were the church. It's referring back to Exodus and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And it says, above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But it's the same word as propitiation. So what does that tell us? Simply this. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus satisfied God's wrath. He is our mercy seat. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus instead of us. Praise God. Yes. John, who wrote 1 John 4, uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John, and Revelation, he said this in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the what? Yeah, that's your chance to say it, right? Propitiation for our sins. Praise God. Jesus took all of God's wrath upon himself when he died on the cross, when he shed his blood, when he was the Lamb of God. Jesus atoned for our sin, removed its sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat. John also said this in 129. The next day Jesus came toward him and said, Behold, this is what John called Jesus, John the baptizer actually, Behold the Lamb of God. What does he do? Takes away the sin of the world. So how does God deal with your guilt? This is what I'm trying to help help you see. The same way he's been doing it from the very beginning. With Adam and Eve, to the Israelites, to now. How does God deal with your guilt? Your guilty condition, I should say. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. God's wrath is satisfied. Your sin is paid for. Did you do anything? Church, did you do anything? No. You didn't do anything. If you did something, it's not grace. It's not a gift if you did something. You didn't do anything. God did it. He sent his son because he loves us. He loves you that much that he sent his son into this world to die for you. And, it, it, and we say that all the time. Here's why I love this. We say it all the time. We say, Jesus died for you. Like, I mean, I'm sure that at some point maybe you've shared that. Maybe you've shared that with your children. You know, we, we do that a lot. We say, Jesus died for you. But people really don't grasp that, what that means. Well, if they listen to this sermon, what I just taught you, you really get it now. He died for you. What do you mean he died for you? He satisfied God's wrath, and he paid the price for your sin. Like, that has to happen. That's Jesus dying for you. That's grace. That's the gift of God. Amen? Yeah. Now, you know what God has done. But how or what do you do? What action do you have to take? And the only acceptable answer is repent. Repent. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't get that word. I don't understand that word. I'll tell you what that means. When you feel guilty, when you know you are guilty, you repent. Jesus said this in Luke 5.32. I have not come to call the righteous. If Jesus was preaching this morning, right now, he would say to you, I have not come to call good people, nice people into heaven. I don't care what your church attendance is. I don't care what good things you have done. I have come to call sinners to repentance. Have you repented? That's the key. That is the key. The Apostle Paul wrote some letters to some churches that he started around the Mediterranean Sea, the city of Corinth, he wrote a letter. A couple letters, we have them in our Bible, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Now, the first letter that he wrote, the 1 Corinthians letter, rebuked, I mean, hammered them for their actions. Because see, he started this church, he was there for 18 months, he left, and they, they kind of did some things that were bad, like real bad, like sexually immoral, worse than pagans, as he said. I mean, they were doing some nasty things. Christians doing some terrible things. So he writes this letter to them to say, you can't, you can't do that. That's not honoring God. And the, letter, the second letter shows how they responded. This is the beautiful part. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, he says, because he called them to action, take action. That's what repenting is, by the way. Repentance is this Greek word metanoia, and it means the act of changing your mind. It's not just changing your mind. It's the act of changing your mind. What have you done that shows you changed your mind? That's repenting. So he says this, As it is, I rejoice, verse 9, not because you were grieved, because you felt guilty, but because you were grieved into what? Repenting. You felt a godly grief. So you suffered no loss through us. A godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. To me, that's like a math problem right there. Godly grief plus repentance leads to equal salvation. Love it. But worldly grief, that produces death. So these Corinthians felt that that guilt, that godly grief, and they repented, and they were Saved. They were sanctified. But worldly grief leads to eternal separation. If I only had a biblical example of worldly grief that I could share with you. Oh, wait, I do. I do. I do. Matthew 27, verse 3. You're familiar with a guy named Judas Iscariot, aren't you? Yeah, he's the guy that betrayed Jesus. And when he betrayed Jesus, it says in Matthew 27.3, when Judas' betrayer saw Jesus was condemned, Jesus was going to the cross, he changed his mind. Now I looked that word up. It's like metanoia, but it's not. It's a little different. And it means to repent to oneself. He brought back 30 pieces of silver, the money that he was paid to rat out Jesus. And the question is, did did Judas truly repent of his sin? No, he did not. Did he feel guilty? Yes. Was he guilty? Yes. But his guilt did not cause him to truly repent to God. Because if he did, he would have gone to Jesus, his mercy seat, and begged for mercy. And then he would have rejoined the disciples and gone and made more disciples. But he didn't do that because he didn't really repent. You see the difference? between godly grief and worldly grief. This summer has been wonderful. Uh, Two camps, I've had the opportunity to share the gospel with over 125 children. And when I share the gospel, I try to explain it as simple as I can so they can conceptually understand it. And I try not to, as I said last week, you know, I don't like big group decisions. I don't post on Facebook, oh, you know, 30 of our, our, our little ones, you know, Became Christians today. I don't. I don't. I don't do that, and I, I don't. I don't condemn others that do that. But uh, to me, I just take salvation serious, and um, I think it's a serious thing. And I think if if I said, you know, thirty confess Jesus as Lord, that, that would make sense to me because we can we can measure that. We can say, yeah, I, I you know, children say I want to put my faith in Jesus. Fantastic. Romans 10.9, I often quote, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and, this is the big and, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Isn't that the interesting, most important part? Believing in your heart. How do you know you believe in your heart? How do I know someone believes in their heart? The answer is repentance. Repentance is the act of changing your mind. You you can say you change your mind, but don't your actions really prove it? Yeah. I mean, you were a kid once, and you pounded your brother or sister once, and your parents told you to say you're sorry, and you said, I'm sorry, but you didn't really mean it, did you? Because you pounded them again the next day. See, that's not true repentance. True repentance is, I'm not going to do that anymore. And if you accidentally, or if you, I don't want to say accidentally, if you do, you feel horrible about it. And you repent again immediately. That's true repentance. It's a changed life. It's a radical pursuit of a holy life. True repentance hates sin with a passion. Fred Stoker co-authored this book called Every Man's Battle. If you're a man, you should read it. Every Man's Battle. By the way, it's lust. That's Every Man's Battle. He tells a story of how he began his life as a young, kind of a preteen, telling himself, I- I'm going I'm to save sex for marriage. I'm, g- I'm going to stay on top of Purity Hill my whole life. But Then he went away to college, one step at a time, one girl at a time slippery slope. Found himself not only sleeping around, but also getting involved, addicted to pornography. Thankfully, God shed his light on Fred. With many tears, he repented of his sinful lifestyle. He changed his ways. This is a man who used to be first in line at the the bookstore to get the release of the new pornographic magazines, and now he's repulsed by them. He was even shocked by his behavior, how how at one point he couldn't wait to look at the new magazines, now he can't stand looking at them. What once was so attractive is now so offensive. That's the power of God, isn't it, in a person's life? That's true repentance. That's a changed life. If you haven't truly repented... I'd like to encourage you to do it today. I'd like to encourage you to go to Jesus, your mercy seat, and find mercy and grace because you need it. I need it. And if I could finish with one other word of encouragement, when some old sins come to mind, that happens, doesn't it? sure does to me. That behavior that that used to get you in trouble when it comes to the mind, you might find yourself playing that shame game again. Oh, I'm such a terrible person. I can't believe I did that. I know I'm not supposed to feel guilty, but I feel so bad. And I don't, I, Did God really forgive me for that? Because that was really, really bad. I, I can't believe I, I did that. I don't deserve God's love. That could be the conversation in your head. I want to encourage you with something. The way we battle stinking thinking the way we battle temptation is to take captive every thought and make it obedient to the word of Christ. Here's the verse that I want you to memorize and recite when you play the shame game. Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are truly a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are no longer condemned. The mercy seat has appeased God's wrath and atoned for your sin. He's taken it far away. Let him take it far away from your mind. Jesus has got you covered. And for all you athletes, isn't Jesus the goat? literally the greatest of all time but he's the goat twice the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat Hebrews 4 16 also says let us then with confidence draw near to this throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need as our team sings this final song I know you, many of you know it. It's a, it's a wonderful one. I invite them to come up and play. But just think about those words. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. There is no condemnation when you are in Christ. Receive mercy, find grace in your time of need. Perhaps you came this morning hurting, broken, You need, you need Christ. You need more of God in your life. He's he's simply saying to you, come to me. Come to me. If you're weary and you're heavy burdened, come to me. I'm your mercy seat. I've, I've got you covered. I've taken care of it for you. I love you. Just come to me. So we sing this song. Let that be your heart's cry. Repent. Turn. And follow Jesus. Amen.